0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Healthy, Wealthy and Smart. I am your host Karen Litzy, and today's show for all of you PT owners or uh and really any PT that works in a clinic or a hospital, this is a must-listen episode. We are talking about rehab compliance. So it's one of those things that you do not learn in PT school. And, and I feel it's something that you really have to seek out um, some continuing education for, or perhaps have someone come into your clinic and help you out with compliance issues. So that being said, today I'm happy, very happy to have on the show as a guest, Nancy Beckley. She is the president of Nancy Beckley and Associates LLC, a firm specializing in outpatient therapy compliance. Her background includes 15 years of hospital experience, serving in management capacities at two large inpatient rehab facilities with extensive managed care contracting and program management expertise. A therapist by background and training, Nancy has served as program director, facility director, and administrator in both inpatient and outpatient rehab facilities. She is a nationally known speaker in the area of rehab compliance, has has presented at many, many conferences. She was also featured in a Healthcare Compliance Association webinar on hospital risks and outpatient therapy, has authored four articles for compliance today, and has written over 20 articles on the RAC program, which is something we will be talking about today. So, Nancy, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for coming on.
1: Karen, it's kind of excited. I've enjoyed listening to all of your podcasts, so it's a pleasure to join you for one.
0: Well, thank you very much. And and you know, this is obviously a niche in the rehab community. So can you kind of give the listeners a little bit more about your background and what sparked your interest in compliance issues?
1: Believe it or not, it was the Balanced Budget Act of nineteen ninety-seven, way, way back then when we went to the $1,500 therapy cap and that kind of upset the apple cart for all of therapy and particularly outpatient therapy. At the time, uh, there was a promise to have mandatory compliance programs and by 1998, the Office of the Inspector General had published the compliance guidance for hospitals. It was the very first compliance guidance published as a result of the balanced budget act stating that voluntary compliance programs should be undertaken and of course anytime CMS says something's voluntary the code speak is we really are hoping that you institute it because it's really not quite voluntary so yeah you know how CMS is Mm -hmm. so I gathered together a number of resources in Washington D.C., including Stuart Curlander, who was an attorney um, recently at the APTA Private Practice Section, and he was now in private practice. Carolyn Zoller from American Medical Rehab Providers, and said, "Let's get together a compliance program and target it toward rehab hospitals." So we did a two-day live seminar in Washington D.C. targeting rehab hospitals and spoke about compliance so basically that was the kickoff of my career in compliance and by the mid-2000s I actually sought certification through the Healthcare Compliance Association and I was probably only the second or third person in the rehab industry to do so the first one being my good friend Mary DeLong a physical therapist in Texas so um, I've never looked back since that time in terms of compliance and compliance is a broad term it can accompany just about anything that you're doing in a practice even though medicare is focusing on it it's not a medicare only tool
0: okay and and actually that kind of leads into the next question is is what exactly is a compliance program and well, what, what does that entail? Because it is a broad term, so what are we talking about when we're talking compliance?
1: Well, the, when the Office of the Inspector General started coming out with what they called um, Compliance Program Guides or Model Compliance Programs, they started with hospitals and then they continued to add for other provider types. In 2000 they released a provider type called Physicians and Small Practices. And in the preamble to that guidance, they indicated that this is just the type of guidance that a physical therapy practice would utilize. So that's actually sort of what I use when I'm working with uh, practices. And I have small practices, meaning a onesie, twosie shop all the way on up to a practice that has several hundred outpatient therapy clinics. So let's take a look at what's required you know in a compliance program if you're committing yourself to doing so and holding yourself out as having a compliance program you're basing your items based on the federal sentencing guidelines and when I started there was a set of federal sentencing guidelines and since that time they've been updated a couple of times I think the most recent in 2010 but the bottom line is you're gonna have seven key elements to your compliance program your first element is going to be written standards of conduct and policies and procedures. So it's a code of conduct. And those aren't really too hard to come up with um, because it really is about your practice, what you believe in, and what you stand for. It's sort of a do the right thing approach. Mm-hmm. And then your compliance policies and procedures. The second element of a compliance program is if you're designating a compliance officer or a committee. The beauty of being in a small practice is that the Office of the Inspector General has recognized that you can't have a compliance program like the local hospital. So they suggest you scale it. So in many small practices, the owner becomes the chief cook and bottle washer and does everything, mm-hmm. including being the chief compliance officer. Like your practice, that right. would be you. Right. And then the third thing, and probably one that uh, represents a significant departure from the er- earliest seven elements is the area to use reasonable efforts to avoid delegating authority to individuals that have been disbarred, either because of illegal activities or other reasons from participating in federal health care programs. So that's number three, and that's fairly critical. In fact, the OIG... 11 stiff penalties if you hire somebody that's been excluded from participation in any federal health care program. So
0: does that mean somebody who has been convicted of something or what is what exactly could that entail? Well
1: it could entail um, either a mandatory exclusion you've committed a violation and based on the violation that you've committed there's a mandatory exclusion from health care programs or it could be a permissive exclusion meaning that something has happened and the OIG has the opportunity to permissively exclude you from participation and there's many different entities that report to the Office of the Inspector General's list of excluded individuals and entities for example state licensing boards may report if they have um, taken someone's license if they suspended a license maybe not likely um, a full thing but if they have pulled somebody's license away and I've actually been involved with um, clients where they've re- interviewed candidates and it turns out that the candidates have stipulations on their license either losing their license probation on a license or a temporary suspension of their license it. and it may or may not be reported to the office of the inspector general so it's an incredibly crucial element that you determine that you're not hiring anybody um, that has those marks on their record so to uh-huh. speak uh-huh. And the fourth element of of an effective compliance program is training and education. And in rehab, that simply means uh, taking the OIG's guidance that for all of your employees, you have an annual education and training program regarding fraud and abuse. And in the training programs that I do, I do them live. Plus, I also have a learning management system where people can listen to my trainings 24-7. If they can't sleep at night, for example, Mm -hmm. you can... Listen to one of my compliance courses. Mm-hmm. But but the, the main course is on general fraud and abuse, but I make it very personal to rehab. It, there's no sense for therapists to try to struggle through examples that have to do with hospitals or clinical laboratories or cardiologists. Sure. So all of my examples are related to true live cases um, that are out there related to therapy, therapists that have been in trouble or therapists that have been subject to a corporate integrity agreement or therapy companies such as HealthSouth, for example. And that generally will suffice a general training for all employees. The OIG also suggests that you conduct additional training courses for people that are in risk positions. And of course, since a therapist is treating a patient and then codes and bills for what they've done, whether they submit it to the insurance company or submit it to a patient to an to an insurance company, they still have to render the code from, you know, the CPT codes that mm-hmm. therapists use and document to support the code. So therapists and people that are in billing and coding are in risk areas. So I okay. I do so the OIG suggests additional training for people in risk areas. And I I create little different mini modules on all of the risk areas that are about 15 minutes in length. I call them bite, bite-sized nuggets okay. so that people aren't totally bored with having to listen to a course. And then you track the training so that if you ever have to demonstrate the effectiveness of your compliance program that you have that training tracked. Okay. The, the fifth element and probably what some consider the most robust element is auditing and monitoring. Uh And auditing and monitoring are two very very different things and in fact people say them so fast and in one breath that they think it's almost the same thing. Auditing is probably pretty close to what everybody thinks it is. You take a chart, you have a hypothesis regarding what you're going to look for and you audit the chart to test your hypotheses. Most therapy clinics do quality audits They have a checklist of everything that they want to see in a chart. They want to see that there's a script by the physician, the script is signed, that an evaluation was done, that goals were written. For example, general quality things that you would do utilizing um, standards of practice for physical therapists. Or you might also do a quality audit against Medicare documentation requirements, all good and well when i come in as an external auditor i'm generally doing a uh, hypothesis testing so i'm looking at a problem and the problem is have you know have the therapist reported the minutes correctly as per the medicare rule so i test that hypothesis so you are actually looking at something real unique and specific specific and actually i like to audit against statutory requirements as opposed to medical review there's there's i think medical review is a great thing to be done inside a clinic it's a great round robin if you're a small provider uh-huh. um, it's great to just network with another provider you know that's a small provider And given the appropriate um, assurances of confidentiality and HIPAA security, that you might just do a round robin of charts just from a quality perspective. Mm -hmm. But auditing is really taking a look at a potential problem um, and testing a hypothesis against it and reviewing charts to determine scoring. Now, monitoring is a whole other thing. Um, And in fact, I've written a monitoring calendar. It doesn't look like a calendar. What it means is just a list of activities that clinics should be doing on a routine basis many times people say to me how do I get started I don't, I don't know what to do and I don't mm-hmm. know who to do it the nice thing about monitoring activities is a lot of them are clerical in nature so the the therapists themselves don't necessarily have to do this so if you have an assistant or have if you're at a clinic and you have a front office person they're great activities to do monitoring activities prevent a billable error. I call them don't ever close a chart without going through this checklist and you know certainly top on the checklist if you're dealing with Medicare is did the physician certify that means sign the plan of care in fact Karen I have offered this in seven seminars and webinars that I've done if any of your listeners want to have a copy of that model auditing and monitoring program um you know they can get in touch with me and I'm happy to share that there there's that's lots great. of opportunities. yeah I, I like to you know provide little opportunities for people to see that it's not terribly complex to get started mm-hmm. and getting started just is you know a commitment now the sixth element of an effective compliance program is enforcement and discipline so in other words if you find that there's noncompliant behavior you would use the discipline that's consistent with whatever is at your company and at most companies, discipline follows some level of progressive discipline. You might give somebody a verbal warning mm-hmm. and then a written warning. So in other words, if you have somebody that, that doesn't document and every time you open up their notes, you find that the documentation is wholly inadequate or they mm-hmm. simply didn't document anything at all, but you're submitting a claim regardless of the insurance company that you're submitting it to, you've submitted a claim that likely contains an attestation that, that you have documented your services so you might say to a therapist um, I really need to tell you that your documentation is not meeting this standard and please take this as a verbal warning and that that means that you're participating in a disciplinary program mm-hmm. and and you know I've been involved in many situations where it's gone to the next level or the third level and it's never a pleasant experience when one therapist has to say to another therapist I've got to put this in writing, and if it happens again, you might lose your job. It's, it's an awful situation to be in. So, sure. um, But it's an important part of demonstrating that you have an effective compliance program. And then the seventh element of and the last element of an effective compliance program is what's called response and prevention. So in other words, there's an opportunity for people at your organization to ask a question, to not be retaliated against, And that you have an opportunity to respond to either actual or potential violations. Many times in therapy, in fact, I'll share a little investigation I went on this summer. Um, You know, locally, they asked me to go to a clinic because somebody had indicated, um, uh, not a therapist, but somebody had thought that a therapist was treating two people at the same time Mm -hmm. and billing both, including the Medicare program. And from what that that person in the clinic observed it was not a therapist they they didn't know so under the compliance program they did what they were supposed to do they reported a suspected activity and as it turned out when I went to the clinic and I reviewed some records and the clinic did not know why I was there other than to review charts it was determined that indeed for a period of time two patients were being seen by one therapist Mm -hmm. but the therapist wrote in their notes one patient arrived early she wrapped up treatment with another patient and the and the patients were not billed for the overlap time so the person observed something they Mm -hmm. were right in their observation but the investigation showed that no improper um, activities took place so that's that's the kind of thing where we're talking you have a duty to report something Mm -hmm. under your compliance program and then we do an investigation and we and it turns out in this particular instance, which is always nice that nothing nothing was wrong right. so those are the seven elements and then in the, in the compliance circles, those of us uh, like to call the eighth element of compliance risk assessment so all of your compliance programs should be based on risk and you know in therapy there's there's all the same risk generally across the universe mm-hmm. so you can start by saying well here's the universal risks having a plan of care signed by a doctor uh, appropriately having a script if you need that for an insurance company even in pre- even in states where there is you know direct access if you mm-hmm. need a script for one reason or another mm-hmm. or if the patient needs it in order to submit a claim to their insurance company if they're submitting it and then as well as your personal risks at your practice if you've done a review and determined that that there's a little gap in something, then you put that as part of your risk plan. But that in a nutshell are the seven elements of compliance and for a small practice getting started it's not terribly difficult to do. It starts with a commitment to do the right thing mm-hmm. and then it's scalable. I think what any practice wants to demonstrate is that they're making an effort and I think that's the key thing. The, um, Karen, I represent a lot of therapy practices that are, that are good actors doing great things with their patients. And they have had the unfortunate of having their number pulled Mm. randomly to be under audit by the Office of the Inspector General. They've done nothing wrong. They've just happened to have their number pulled. Or um, somebody has made a question regarding a program to the FBI or the Department of Justice, and they may or may not have done anything wrong, but an investigation needs to take place so one of the first things that happens when these federal authorities come is they ask you for your policies and procedures on how you bill federal health care programs and how you communicate this to your staff and I've seen it time and time and time again and then if you've ever read any of the office of the inspector general reports always was in the reports it states these problems happened because this therapy practice did not have effective policies and procedures telling their staff how to bill federal health care programs. So um, I can't stress enough that if you do one thing, it's to have a compliance program and start it up and make sure all of your employees, from therapists to your billing people, know what's required when you make an attestation and make a claim to a federal health care program, which includes care, Medicaid, TRICARE. And other federal affiliates.
0: Got it. So, are you excited? Yes, yes. It's a lot of information to take in, but it's also a lot to think about. So, you know, hopefully, those listening that maybe do not have this program in place might be a good time to start. Um, and, and that kind of leads in to my next question: Is is it mandatory? Well, the I know you said it's quote-unquote <laughs> voluntary, <Yeah. laughs> but do you get a fine or something if you don't have this program, have a compliance program?
1: Well, it's June Gibbs Brown, who was the um, inspector general at the time that the Balanced Budget Act came into play, made a famous quotation that said, any provider that does not have a compliance program is, quote, institutionally nuts. Okay. that's not in <laughs> nuts and that was the inspector general stating mm-hmm. that at the time so that wa- that's why i said even though cms indicated it was voluntary mm-hmm. uh, it really isn't now that we've had the affordable care act mm-hmm. and the affordable care act has announced that provider programs effective in 2013 are required for compliance Okay. and the first program that was to be required was for skilled nursing facilities. Okay. However, what happened is CMS didn't publish rules. So the inspector general has said, well, just because CMS didn't publish rules and technically they can't enforce the requirement, everybody should actually take the Program guidances, like I just mentioned uh-huh. right here, for physicians and small practices and get a program going. It is required under the Affordable Care Act, but the rules have not been published, so obviously they can't right. be enforced.
0: Right, typical.
1: Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay. Um, so now, you know, if people are considering, if they don't have a compliance program, considering to start a compliance program, have a consultant come in to help them out. The question is, and probably on the minds of a lot of small business owners, is will it save you money, will it save you time, and in essence, is it worth it? Is it worth it to put the investment in now, and could it save you in the future?
1: I think it's worth the investment because I've seen what's happened to small practices that find themselves in a pinch under review and are scrambling to put something together because nothing's Mm -hmm. there or scrambling to show as evidence that they have a compliance program that they did some chart reviews so to the to the extent that you can begin small and begin scaling for example um, I, I recently took a course with the Office of the Inspector General this summer and they they told something that was very, very telltale. They said, if you do nothing else, get your code of conduct. So in other words, what do you subscribe to? What's your philosophy? Do you want to do the right thing? Are you committed to doing the right thing? That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, have you ensured that people that you're employing have not been excluded from participation in federal health care programs? They consider that an incredibly serious offense and, and people are fined. Mm-hmm. seriously for, for doing that. So that's number two so kind of start with that and I this is exactly what I guide people. Let's get something on paper. What's your mission vision and values mm-hmm. and let's turn that into your code of conduct. Number two, let's demonstrate that you're doing credentialing. So check the licenses and verify them and print that copy off and verify that they've not been sanctioned by the Medicaid state that you're operating in on the Medicaid list or with the list of excluded um, entities and individuals at the office of the inspector general that's number two and then number three is to tell people how to conduct themselves you know with respect to billing federal health care programs that people in your organization know the rules mm-hmm. and um, I went at the compliance Institute this spring they, there were several panels that involved a lawyer from the Office of the Inspector General, a lawyer from the Department of Justice, and perhaps, you know, some other panelists. And those are probably the best sessions to go to because they give you a thought process of how they think when they're looking at a provider. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the chilling things that I heard was if you go out, Uh, And you're under review and you turn around to the Department of Justice or the FBI or the um, Office of the Inspector General and say, gee whiz, I didn't know that was a Medicare rule. And I can't tell you how many times people say to me or write me, when did Medicare change that rule? Mm-hmm. And I have to say, gee whiz, in two thousand and six, right. you know. So many times, people are not up to date or don't have a clear understanding of the rules. And sometimes it's a matter of confusion between what are the rules for outpatient versus sniffs or something mm-hmm. or home health. So um, the the Office of the Inspector General said, if you come to us and say we didn't understand that was a rule, and he said, if we find through examination vis-a-vis our email mining program that you sought advice from list serves outside groups etc and you relied on advice that was incorrect you will have um, we'll, you know basically you'll have no case before us by saying you didn't understand so they made it very very clear to me that people that are out there searching for advice shouldn't bother searching for advice on general listservs where people Mm -hmm. say well I think it's this Mm -hmm. I think this is what you're supposed to do or I'm not a Medicare expert but I heard that Mm -hmm. or my you know I I once knew somebody that asked this question and of course it could have been 10 years ago and it could have been related to home health Mm -hmm. and this is the answer they got and of course the lifeblood for me as a consultant in compliance is regulatory references so when people ask me an opinion, my opinion is based upon a statutory citation or a regulation or something in a policy manual and many times providers are, are going to interpret things themselves. For example, and I've probably done this many times this summer, you know the whole issue of uh, trigger point dry needling. Mm-hmm. And if you take a look at the advice um, and information that's provided at the APTA website, it really suggests Um, that it is not an approved Medicare service and I've heard many many rationales that providers have for wanting to bill Medicare and I won't enter into that fray that's provider's decision Uh but but if you rely on advice where you would say look at a listserv and everybody's created an argument of why you should use this particular code um, to bill for trigger point dry needling and bill it to Medicare Where it's not included in in that particular code description, especially when that code was written a number of years ago, Mm -hmm. that you're relying on information that is not based on fact or Medicare regulations. Um, uh, You know, another good example is missed therapy for wound care. Mm -hmm. Not covered. Not covered. Not covered by Medicare. Not covered by Medicare, except by local coverage determination. Correct. So that has been one of those areas that Medicare, like Ionto has said, we're going to let the locals, meaning Mm -hmm. Meridian, WPS, and, you know, Novitas, and the like, we're going to let them take a look with their medical director and see if it's a policy that they want to state is an effective uh, modality that can Mm -hmm. be used. So... You know, and I've worked with providers in jurisdictions where they're confused because across state lines you can bill for a, you know, missed therapy or Ionto, and you go to the next state and you can't bill for that. Right. So it's important that you rely on the information that's presented rather than make up your own rules or attempt to rely on somebody's advice. Your say. That's,
0: yeah, exactly. So, where do you go to find these rules? Where can people go?
1: Well, first of all, Medicare publishes a number of policy manuals um, on their website, and the biggest policy manuals that you would want to refer to, or the most frequent ones, are the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual, the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, the chapters that are related to your type of therapy. So. Outpatient therapy rehab agencies and corps, for example, for outpatient, and then also you would want to rely on information that's contained in the Medicare program integrity manual. That's sort of the policing manual, so to speak, and tells you what you can or can't do. Mm-hmm. Manuals, Karen, as you can only imagine, are confusing.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't.
1: They don't seem to follow an um, um, in order in effective order. They don't have a linear thought process to some of the stuff. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can read this stuff over and over and over again and you're not quite clear. I yes. think a perfect example is a lot of the misunderstanding right now related to what is medically necessary, what is medically necessary for therapy over the cap, and where does skilled maintenance therapy come in mm-hmm. per the GMO settlement. Mm-hmm. And even though Medicare has written and given case examples the bottom line is it's still up to the therapist to render an opinion and fit it within the rules. Uh-huh. And 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 there is a lot of problematic discussion on that out there, especially, as you know, where it relates to cash therapy. People right. say, well, if it's over the cap and it's not medically necessary, um, you can treat the patient. True. But who determined it was not medically necessary, given the understanding we now have CMS's clarification of skilled maintenance programs as well as skilled maintenance therapy and there's a difference between a skilled maintenance program and skilled maintenance therapy that you're not going to necessarily glean from reading the Medicare rules. Right. Um, I've read all of the agreements and the lawsuit documents that the Center for Medicare Advocacy, they were the lead plaintiff in that Jimmo settlement. Mm-hmm. Plus, I've also had the pleasure of interacting um, with the uh, one of the lead lawyers in that case, and it, it's been very, very challenging for them to to work within this confines. You know, and it was not only related to therapy; it was related to some nursing services too that took place. But that's where you come into if anybody sat down and determined what was medically necessary the max the medicare administrative contractors that are reviewing charts even in their same office don't necessarily concur when they're reading the mm. same chart as if it was medically necessary or mm. not so that's mm. the slippery slope
0: yeah it's it's so so ambiguous such a gray area i feel I, like
1: it, it, and i don't like to use the word gray area i like to use the word ambiguous ambiguous that, yeah, yeah. Because gray area kind of means, well, there's a chance to break the rules. Mm, right, <laughs> so, right, right. So, so um, you know, it might be better to say it, it's there's a level of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. But if you determine at a certain level that something is medically necessary, the onus is on you as a therapist to take your documentation to the level that clearly demonstrates why only a physical therapist with these skills could possibly do this this safely, exactly, and and it's always, I always tell therapists when they're struggling with this, because I do a lot of, my clients call me a lot on an individual case and we'll go over it, Mm -hmm. Um, for example, somebody called me recently and said, the patient has reached all of her goals except clean her bathtub, you know, is it still medically necessary for her to have therapy, now that may sound a little silly as we're talking Mm -hmm. here, Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I had the person review everything in the context and it sounds like just a homemaker that was thinking, you know, I grew up and this was, you know, cleaning my house and cleaning the bathtub is certainly a part of my home responsibilities and I want to be able to do that. Now, think of all the complexities you need to get down on your knees and Mm -hmm. stick yourself in a bathtub and get off the cleanser and do all of that scrubbing and whatnot. and. You know, we took a look at the whole context of the case, and I let the therapist arrive at a decision that, as much as the patient wanted to continue coming to therapy to achieve that personal goal, everything else that she achieved in terms of her impairments and function really demonstrated that it wasn't any longer medically necessary. Right. But I've reviewed other cases where when the therapist goes through, I like a therapist to listen to themselves talk. And then to have them come back and make a decision. Therapists can tell you if it's medically necessary, they have a hard time committing it to writing. So sometimes Mm -hmm. they just need help transposing in, you know, what they truly know to be to the case, yes or no, into their notes.
0: All right. So now you sort of touched on this for a second, talking about cash practice. But if you have a cash-based practice and you're not seeing Medicare patients, Um, do you have to worry about a voluntary compliance program? Is it necessary?
1: Well, it depends on what you're doing in your cash practice. Mm -hmm. I would always tell somebody, no matter what your practice is, in a cash practice in particular, to to get yourself a set of policies and procedures together. Because what if you ever have to demonstrate that you have some policies and procedures? God Mm -hmm. forbid that um, you have some type of a problem. Mm-hmm. related to a case and somebody wants you to present what are your policies and procedures for your practice what are your policies and procedures for obtaining a client what are your policies and procedures for your evaluation and your plan of care simply following good therapy practice and that can be the start of not necessarily what I would call a compliance program but basically your own internal code of conduct how you'll behave with patients You know, and a lot of that starts, as you know, with your marketing materials, Mm -hmm. where you're holding yourself out as what you are, that you're a good, solid, ethical therapist with good clinical skills. And that's a great place to start and create a file folder where you're continuing to add to that. And it becomes a level of protection for your practice. So if you have a cash practice, do you need a compliance program if you're not doing any billing? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, you don't. But if you're getting into where you're going to be maybe recording things in an electronic medical record and you're going to be um, if a patient asks you to submit a, com- a claim for them on their behalf, mm-hmm. you know, when you start getting into it's when you get into trouble understanding the rules is when you put when you dial the Rubik's Cube up mm-hmm. and you have all different conditions. And I think that's when people get tongue tied in trying to figure things out. And there's not always a simple answer. But, but should a cash practice adhere to some policies and procedures? Absolutely. And it can start just as simple with what's your philosophy of practice, what's your own internal conduct. And then, of course, you know there's legal requirements for HIPAA if you're going to be considered a covered entity. So many cash practices make sure that they're not considered a covered entity. And can you
0: explain the co- what a covered entity is? Basically, if you
1: are, um, the best way to understand a covered entity is to go to the Office of Civil Rights under their page on HIPAA and take a look at the regulations regarding what constitutes a covered entity. And if you are going to electronically transmit or receive protected health information, you're a covered entity in a nutshell.
0: Mm-hmm. But and if what, somebody's, I'm sorry, so... Uh, what would that uh entail if like a uh, what documentation would be electronically transferred
1: um any information that you would send to an insurance company most notably the hipaa code transaction sets and um including sending a claim out okay so and if you're going to maintain it electronically too, I think some of, I, I know some of the folks that have cash practices that use EMR programs just to do their documentation. Yeah. And they what they do then is they commit themselves to being, you know, having a um, notice of privacy practices that they deliver to their patients. So that kind of takes the next step. And if you're, if you're and you know, there's many cash practices that have one foot in Medicare because they're enrolled in Medicare, but everything else is cash. Mm-hmm. And there are some successful practices doing just that because of their market. I I was in Florida 25 years, and there certainly is a high interest in people doing cash, especially in the market areas where a lot of people are very wealthy and mm-hmm. want to pay cash for services, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Medicare or not. But people in South Florida have to keep their foot in Medicare if they're going to be a therapy practice for the most part and stay in Mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. So, And and other parts of the country, folks that um, are involved in cash and Medicare. So you accept cash for everything else and give people the claims in order to send to their own insurance company and you collect the money from them for the visit but for Medicare patients you're actually a participating provider and you're sending the claim to Medicare so you definitely at that particular point are a covered entity Mm -hmm. and you're bound by um, the health insurance portability and accountability act most notably the most recent update and enforcement date of September 23rd of 2013 which was the HIPAA omnibus rule just and everything is collect- collectively called HIPAA so for for people that are involved that way there are serious consequences to non non compliance if you're caught so to speak and and that this there's pretty serious fines for that I also want to clarify that HIPAA is not equal to Medicare, and HIPAA is not a Medicare requirement. HIPAA is a standalone law that is enforced by the Office of Civil Rights, and it's applicable to all insurance carriers, I think, with the exception of uh, workers' comp, if I'm not mistaken. Whereas, you know, it's not just applicable to Medicare. So I want to make sure that that distinction is clear.
0: Okay. Um, Thank you for all of that. Now... We have time for uh, one more question, but okay. I have like five more to ask, so we may have to do a part two. Okay. Um, so this question, it was one from Twitter, came from Richard Zao. I hope I did not just butcher his last name. And he said, what, compliance is, the, what is the compliance risk if a PT is using an online video chat app, such as Skype, for treating patients?
1: That's a great question, and you know I write a social media column for Compliance Today, which is the Journal of the um, Healthcare Compliance Association, and I my little column is just to talk about media and potential implications. And of course, social media, as you know, is emerging faster than the law or policies can emerge. Mm-hmm. But a couple of thoughts, and I'm not a legal expert on social media, but one of the things you want. To do when communicating with patients and have their permission to use an open forum mm-hmm. I don't know if Skype is, has, has a secure network meaning if, if I'm at my computer mm-hmm. is my computer secure in other words where am I transmitting from am I on the highway mm-hmm. or am I at um, the back room of Starbucks mm-hmm. or am I in the back room of a hospital you know where am I, and as the network that I'm accessing, a secure, password-protected network. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the first considerations you want to take a look at. Secondly, um, what what in terms of Skype is secure? Do we know anything regarding the Skype program security? Because we hear all the time about somebody stating that they had a breach, right, or that they had a breakdown in their network. Or that the Chinese stole, you know. I think X, just y black, X, Y, and Z, um, and so on. So I think the the questions to start with is going back, and and since Skype was mentioned in particular, is to go back and contact Skype. And I've actually done this for um, some of the networks that I use. And if and if somebody um, is not willing. To discuss HIPAA with you or doesn't understand it, mm-hmm. that might be kind of a little a little bit of a risk orientation. I do know that in telemedicine, mm-hmm. and there's some there's some great correspondence that's been going on online and telemedicine that's mm-hmm. been very exciting, especially with respect to PT and OT, that people that, that are using telemedicine portals are using secure portals. Mm-hmm. So that that tells me if Got we're going to look at Skype, is Skype a secure portal? So that's the question that I'll bring back, and maybe the guy that asked the question might be willing to take a look at um, bringing us back some answers.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, that sounds like uh, sounds like a plan. So Richard, if you're listening, get back to us via Twitter, which is probably not secure at all. Um, <laughs> anyway, so we have like about oh two minutes left here, so. Um, like I said, there, I, we actually, Nancy and I did have a lot more to talk about, but we just ran out of time, so we'll probably do a part two at some point. Um, but if you can just kind of give the listeners a summary of, of what we talked about and what's most important in your eyes when it comes to compliance.
1: The most important thing, Karen, for compliance is to make a commitment. And once you make a commitment, sometimes it's as simple as opening up a file folder and just keeping a log and starting with something. You don't have to stop all operations. You don't have to have a panic attack because you will if something comes up and you don't have a compliance program in place. So start with what's your mission, vision, and values. Start from that place of integrity at your practice where the integrity that you're offering to your patients And then, as I mentioned, start eventually adding those various different elements, and pretty soon your compliance program will be built if you want to do it on your own. And as I mentioned, for your listeners, I'm glad to offer a complimentary copy of a monitoring and auditing template that can be modified for your practice.
0: And where can they find that and find you?
1: They can find me at nancybeckley.com. Nice and easy.
0: Very easy. And, and where you're very active also on Twitter. So what is your Twitter handle?
1: Nancy Beckley.
0: All right. So um, everybody, if you want the, uh, the great offer that Nancy has given to all the listeners, please go to her website, find her. Should they email you?
1: They can email me if they'd like to, or they great. can message me on my website. There's a place that you can send me a message. Oh,
0: cool. All right. So thanks so much for, for taking the time and coming on. And we expect you to be on again because we didn't even get to the RAC, the RAC. <laughs> so yes. that, that is it. we'll save that for another talk. So thanks so much for coming on and taking the time out.
1: Well, thank you, Karen. This has been a blast. I've enjoyed listening to um, your other podcasts oh, that you've you. done, and it'll be, it'll be fun to listen to this one.
0: Now you'll listen to yourself. It's always weird when you have to mm-hmm. listen to yourself. Yes, it is. Uh, I Believe me. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, everyone. Thanks for listening. And, and again, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so through my website, KarenLitzy.com, or on Twitter, KarenLitzyNYC. So everybody have a great week. Stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.